Last week we were looking at the uh, the last judgment, uh, some things related to the uh, last judgment that it that uh, it is certain that everyone will uh, face it. And one of the th- and we talked a little bit about you know the people will be judged by their deeds, what they've said, and ultimately whether or not they have accepted or rejected Christ. One last thing I wanted to. Uh, Discuss before moving on to the next topic um, is the uh, the idea expressed in Scripture that in the last judgment, in that day, those of us who are in Christ are protected by the Lord. That we do not need to fear those that last day. We do not need to fear the last judgment if we are in Christ. And it's certainly nothing um, on our own merits, we know that, but whether or not we're in Christ. And I wanted to kind of finish this up because I I think that the last judgment can uh, kind of be a very scary topic. Uh, I mentioned, and if you were here a couple Sunday nights nights ago, uh, Cecil uh, focused on that idea of, of assurance and confidence that we can have. So that we, we shouldn't be wondering if the Lord returned right now where we're going to be. Uh, again, not based on anything we have done, but based on who he is. And so there are a couple passages I want to share as we finish that up. Um, certainly we could look at more passages uh, than just these two, but I think they do highlight the way in which the, the writers of the Bible emphasize to us that God is protecting us through that last judgment. So Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Uh, the context here, of course, is uh, Peter's recounting of a variety of things, of, of how the Lord uh, has protected the faithful uh, in the face of the unrighteous and brought judgment on the unrighteous. Uh, And so he wants to assure his readers, both then and us today, uh, that that God knows how to rescue his people. And that that includes even the judgment. John also writes in 1 John 4, verse 17, By this is love perfected, perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Not only can we feel... uh, well, I have a good feeling about judgment or, you know, I trust in Christ. No, John says we can have confidence. Again, it's not arrogance. It's not anything of our own doing, our own feeling. But we have confidence because of him, his love, and the promises he has given us. So the last judgment is coming. All of us will be there. All of us will face that judgment seat. But the promise is that those that are in Christ have nothing to fear about that. It's not a day of fear, not a day of committee, uh, but a day we should be looking forward to. Any last questions or comments about the last judgment or the judgment day or the day of the Lord? There's a variety of ways it's described in Scripture.
Cecil mentions about uh, Paul in the, the letter to Timothy saying that, that this, this Jesus' return is our blessed hope and it's the glorious appearing uh, of Christ. Right? It's, it's not something uh, fearful or, or something that we need to be um, scared of. Tonight's topic uh, I wanted to turn to was the idea of uh, resurrection. Now, resurrection, of course, is very much closely tied to the last judgment, to the day of judgment. And uh, our resurrection will take place um, at, the, at the last judgment. But there are kind of some things, I think, that, uh, that while they're not the same kind of teachings we were looking at previously. You know, over the first couple of weeks, we looked at some of the teachings that were kind of out there in culture and religious groups and said, okay, what's the scripture say about them? This, some of the things connected with the resurrection and our, idea, our ideas of the resurrection have been influenced by a long trajectory in the history of Christianity that we can't necessarily pin on any one particular group or any one particular person, but something that kind of developed uh, in that history that shapes even how we think of it today. And particularly, um, a lot of our thinking is often shaped by how the Greeks viewed the afterlife. Now, one of the things that when it comes to how the, the Greeks and, and then also the Romans talk about the afterlife, they focused on uh, what they referred to as the underworld. That, you know, when you died, your soul descended into, you know, the, the other realm. And that was true whether, you know, your soul, uh, whether you'd done good or whether you'd done evil. There were two places in the underworld. There was, there was Hades, uh, which was a place of uh, kind of punishment, where, you know, you hear like the, the myth of Sisyphus, where you kind of, the idea of these, uh, these punishments that were representative of your life, right? And so uh, somebody gluttonous being force-fed food. Uh, the myth of Sisyphus, of course, is Sisyphus has to roll this rock up a hill. Once it gets it up a hill, it rolls back down, and then he's got to go back down and roll the thing up the hill, right? And so there was this idea of this place of punishment in, in the lower realms, but then there was also uh, the Elysian fields, right? So there was kind of a place of, uh, not so much um, reward, but it, it was kind of a, a, be, a better place to, to live. Well, from that concept, of course, you know, growing up, I always had this idea, right, hell's in the, right, beneath us. Right? And so sometimes we get this idea, like, you know, even though we know it's not true, but we get this idea of, like, you descend into the lower regions of the earth when you die, if you're going to hell. Right? And so you go down into the pit. So that was one aspect of the Greek view of the underworld. And, and really, for the Greeks, there was a rejection that there was a possibility of return. Trip to the underworld was a one-way street. And even in something like the, the story of Orpheus, uh, where Orpheus is allowed to go down into the underworld and bring his uh, loved one back, right? as long as he makes it the whole way up 
without looking at her, without looking back, she'll be, uh, she'll be reborn. And of course, at the very end, right before he gets out, he looks back and she, of course, disappears. Right? That myth is to remind people, was to remind the Greeks, there's, it's a one-way street. You don't come back. Now, so far, those kind of concepts, we, we don't hold as Christians. That's not necessarily something we, we, we believe in that, that Scripture teaches. But there was an idea connected with those two concepts that has influenced a lot of the way in which we think about life after death. And really, it was kind of a uh, shaping uh, of these concepts by Plato and uh, some of his um, later followers. I'm I'm very emphatic when I say Plato, because if I just said it like I normally said it, it'd come out Plato, and then you'd be thinking about making something out of Plato. No, Plato. Plato, the Greek philosopher. Well, in Greek thought, shaped by Plato and Platonism, um, was the idea of the immortality of the soul. Right? The soul went down to the underworld, and it was an immortal soul. It lived, it continued to live after death. We think about that as Christians. And Christians and people who have named Christ throughout history have talked about the immortality of the soul, but Scripture does not teach the immortality of the soul. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you have an immortal soul. The only one that has immortality is God. Yet, not only do we think about the immortal soul, when we think about heaven... We often think of ourselves as just kind of disembodied souls. We're going to be floating around on clouds, etc., etc. But that notion of the immortality of the soul has infected how we think about what happens after we die. Now, do we have a soul? Absolutely. Scripture teaches that. Does that soul continue on? Absolutely. Scripture teaches that. But Scripture does not teach what often we think of when it comes to this. Instead, what we see from Scripture is more what the Jews taught and then how that is further emphasized by the teachings of Christ and the apostles. So what's the teaching in the Old Testament? Well, when you come to the Old Testament, there's very little really said about the afterlife. There there are some discussions, or there's some references to us having life after death. And, and there's a couple passages. Jacob, for example, when he, when he thinks Joseph is dead. Uh, David, when he think, when his, uh, with the, son, the first son he had with Bathsheba, when he dies. Um, there are a couple other references in Scripture where there is this indication of when loved ones die, there's still an existence. And Jesus, of course, uses that idea when he talks about the burning bush, right? God, you know, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is that notion, but there's not an extended treatment. There's not an extended discussion in the Old Testament about what happens when we die. There is, however, several references to the realm of the dead. It's the Hebrew word sheol. And so sometimes your, sometimes your translations will just say Sheol, 
and the dead go there. And there is some indication of a continued existence. Um, there is indication of, uh, you know, kind of a, a separateness, right? that after death there's a disconnect from this world and the next world. And, and there's not much of a concept of an intermingling of this world and that world. The only instance we really have of that um, is Samuel coming up uh, in uh, 1 Samuel uh, when he's brought up by the witch of Endor. Certainly there are people brought back to life. Elijah brings somebody back to life. Elisha brings somebody back to life. But largely you get this idea that people die. They go to this realm known as Sheol. But then again, there's not much said about that. Not any sort of extensive discussion. However, there, is, uh, there are a few verses, again, relatively few, that teach resurrection. A coming back to life that will take place at the end. One of the passages that clearly teaches this is Daniel chapter 12. Now, there are, there are a few other passages that might teach this. Right? And so Job, for example, talks about, you know, kind of after his flesh has been destroyed, then with my eyes I will see God. Right? And so a lot of people suggest that might be a reference to a resurrection. But one of the verses that clearly teaches it in the Old Testament, or two of the verses that clearly teach it in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says there, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the, star, I should say, like the stars forever and ever. And so this idea of awakening, right, and specifically kind of like in the end, at the end. And that awakening is for both. It's for the righteous and the unrighteous, and there will be a going on to either reward or punishment. And so it's important for us to begin to see that what Scripture teaches is the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of the body, not the immortality of the soul. You might say, well, does it really make a difference? Well, I think on one hand it does, because we want to teach what the Bible teaches. Right? And so if the Bible teaches the resurrection of the body, then we should be talking about the resurrection of the body and not the immortality of the soul. But if we have time tonight, uh, we'll talk about it, if not, Lord willing, next week, about you know, some of the things that that means. And so this idea of resurrection was a Jewish concept, again, not one that has a lot of discussion in the Old Testament, but definitely one that was distinct from a lot of the cultures around them. Most people in those ancient cultures did not believe in resurrection. Right? Not the immortality soul, a lot of them believed in life after death, but not resurrection, right? the body coming back to life. But as we come to the New Testament, however, the New Testament is filled with passages about resurrection. And most of it 
hinges on, is deeply connected to, if not all of it, the resurrection of Christ. And because Christ experienced resurrection, we too look forward to resurrection. And so the, the writers will kind of bring that out. Right? Christ's resurrection is a precursor to our resurrection. It's important to see, it's important to, I think, recognize that one of the things emphasized throughout Scripture in the New Testament is that it was a certainty that Christ resurrected. The writers, both the Gospel writers and the later New Testament writers, are not hedging their bets. It's not a matter of, well, we think it kind of happened. Or we're not really sure what happened. We know Jesus kind of had an afterlife experience, but we're not really sure what No, they're certain that those people, the apostles, several hundred brethren, experienced the resurrected Christ after his death and his burial. Furthermore, I think we can be certain that it took place. Right? When you, when you look at people trying to discredit Christianity, they will look at a lot of these supernatural events, right? Jesus' miracles, Jesus' virgin birth, and his resurrection as being things nobody could seriously believe that that actually take place. But we have to ask ourselves, if, we, if it didn't take place, where did these stories come from? Well... If it didn't take place, they were either invented, right? the apostles made them up, or somebody made them up, or they thought he was resurrected, but were wrong. Right? If it didn't actually happen. But think about it this way. You're a close follower of Jesus. He's died. A couple days later, somebody comes to you and says, I've encountered Christ again. I've excuse me, not encountered Christ, I've encountered Jesus again. Jesus has come back to life. He's actually living back to life. And I, I encountered him. Do you buy that? Right? Thomas didn't, absolutely right. right? Thomas doubted, right? Unless I see him, unless I... Stick my hand in his, uh, stick my fingers in his uh, hands, or stick my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe. No, the other the other apostles wouldn't have believed that. Note throughout how how much it's it's emphasized that they they doubted even after encountering him. They doubted. You know, people back then didn't believe that people just rose from the dead anymore. We we believe it. I mean, sometimes it happened, but the resurrection for Jews was something that was going to happen at the end of time. It wasn't happening to an individual in the middle of time. And in many cases, we, we might say, well, there are passages in the Bible that, uh, that point to Jesus' resurrection. Absolutely. In the Old Testament, there are several passages that point to that. But they didn't believe the Messiah was going to die, let alone come back to life. So it's not some sort of belief that they had. So what do you do if your Messiah dies? You find another Messiah. 
So the idea that a group of individuals could have concocted this story just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then convince the others. I mean, uh, I mean put yourself in their shoes. Right? Put yourself in John's shoes or, or James's shoes. One of the other apostles comes to you. No, he's dead. Right there's his tomb. They didn't believe in, in that thing happening any more than human beings today do. Furthermore, of course, you have, have to think about when would they have made up this story? Well, a lot of people want to date a lot of the New Testament documents later to the first century so that eventually... Christians started believing Jesus was God because he rose from the dead. So the, the story kind of got concocted. Well, if you've been attending Dr. Hillier's class on Sunday mornings, he's been emphasizing that it was just within a few years after Jesus' resurrection, or his death, let's say, that Paul was converted. And Paul emphasized throughout his preaching, we'll look at it, the resurrection of Christ. So if that story is going to be invented, it's got to be invented very, very quickly. And it's got to be enough that it causes Paul to buy into it. Right? So the, the idea that these men invented it doesn't seem likely. Right, yeah, the, the, uh, the idea of, uh, the, especially some of his close followers, right, who would have invented it. Uh, the, if they know it's not true, when persecution starts happening, what are they going to do? Are they going to continue to persist in this? Furthermore, they claim that by this, he became king of the world. That Jesus becomes king because of his resurrection. Yeah, so very good points, and, and we'll, we'll come back and, and highlight some of that uh, here in just a little bit. Um, but this was something certain, right? It, it was something that they were absolutely convinced about. Something I think that we can be very convinced about. I mean, by the very fact of how much their religious practice changed, 
based on the resurrection testifies to the certainty of it. For example, what was the most important day of the week for the Jew? Sabbath. When do these followers of Jesus gather for worship? First day of the week. Explain how that happens without the resurrection. How does that happen if they suddenly decide, let's move it to Sunday? No good reason. You know, I just like having Sundays. But no, I mean, the, the, the gospels say on the first day of the week. So it makes sense that they would change from the Sabbath to the first day of the week if the resurrection took place. But it doesn't make sense if it didn't. What's the, uh, what's the way in which somebody becomes a member of this community of followers of Jesus? Baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection. Why does baptism become so central and connected with the resurrection very, very early on? By the 50s at the latest, Paul is talking about you're baptized into the death and then you're raised to walk a new life. How's that start if the resurrection isn't important? What do these these followers of Jesus do regularly on this first day of the week? They gather together. One of the things they do is they take bread, take wine, and remember his death. But again, why do they do it on the first day of the week? Why not Thursday? When that was when he when he instituted it. it was on a Thursday. Why do it on a Sunday, if the resurrection didn't take place. So we can be certain of the resurrection. Right? It's not an irrational view. Yeah, they, they were absolutely convinced even to the point of death. Even Paul who is very upfront that he persecuted this way. I mean, how do you explain Paul? And some people say, well, you know, it was cognitive dissonance. He was so upset about persecuting these people that he suddenly became one of them. That doesn't work. Well, he, he thinks he has an experience of the risen Christ. Why? I mean, Paul, Paul says, I, I did these things in good conscience. He was actually convinced that what he was doing was right. Why does he suddenly so massively change? Not a kind of, well, maybe I'll check it out. No, he's absolutely a complete conversion. Not only are the followers of Christ then, and we today can be certain about it, it was a bodily resurrection. That when the people who encountered Christ after his death, encountered him, they encountered a bodily resurrected Christ. There's several passages we could look at. Uh, we'll just look at two. One of those is Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus appearing to uh, 
the 12, excuse me, the 10. Judas is dead and Thomas isn't there. So he's appearing to the 10. And Luke writes, um, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Right? Luke says, Jesus Man, you know, through many different signs, is, is kind of the way he puts it at the beginning of Acts, manifested his resurrection to them. Right? And this is just one of them, right? right? Touch my hands. Right? Touch my feet. And when they went to give me something to eat, right? this fish isn't going to disappear because a ghost ate it. We also, somebody also uh, mentioned uh, about uh, Thomas. Thomas there, of course, is very skeptical. He's not there when Jesus originally appears. But when Jesus appears to Thomas, what's he say? Put your finger here. See my hand. Put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So, again, Jesus... Is, is opening himself up to physical examination. Now, I, I think it, you know, Scripture doesn't say whether Thomas did it or not. We, it does say he falls down and says, my Lord, my God, but he doesn't actually say uh, whether Thomas actually had to do it, even though Thomas said, unless I do it, I'm not going to believe. So it's to Thomas's credit that when confronted with the truth, he changed his mind and recognized who Christ was. But the emphasis again is, Jesus, when he rose from the grave, was resurrected in a physical body. We might say, okay, why is that so important? And, and how do we know that this isn't just something special about Jesus? Jesus had to be in a physical body to demonstrate that he was um, that he was risen. Well, it's important because there is an emphasis throughout Scripture that just as Christ was resurrected, we too will be resurrected, and that Jesus' resurrection is what's called the first fruits, right? It's kind of a preliminary experience, a preliminary harvest of what we can expect. Several passages talk about this in the writings of Paul. Uh, we'll just look at, at two verses here because of time and because I think they su sufficiently say it. Both of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In uh, verse 20, uh, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, wow, I didn't spell check that, uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, and then verse uh, 23 says, But in, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits." then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So just like Christ was resurrected in a physical body, we will be resurrected in a physical body. That Christ kind of precedes it, demonstrates what's going to take place. And so in many respects, I think it's important for us to see that 
you know, that, that this emphasis on the resurrected body is something very, very important. Christ was resurrected in a body, right? And so we should expect bodily resurrection. Now, we might want to... Now, here's the part where we start going off on tangents and thinking about things that Scripture doesn't really address, right? So Christ was resurrected with the wounds that he had when he died, what about Paul who was beheaded? Uh, what, about, what about somebody that dies in a fire or is eaten by fit, right? And so we start getting all these things, you know, how's that going to be? Or, or we get into things like, you know, is it, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? And all these other kind of things. And I, I think that if we, we go down some of those roads, Scripture doesn't want to talk about those things. <laughs> And so we don't want to go too, right, when my body's resurrected, right, will it have more hair? Will I be 25 and beautiful? No, 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 you're getting, you're getting off on the wrong thing. You're, you're focusing on the wrong types of things. If that's the direction, you go with this. Uh, yes, we, it's very interesting to kind of speculate on some of these things, but Scripture's not interested, in, in, and evidently God was not interested in recording in Scripture those kind of things, but instead wanted to emphasize that when the resurrection happens, it will not be, we will not be floating around disembodied souls, but we will be in resurrected bodies. Yeah, the, the, we, uh, we have to recognize God's power. And so what Scripture teaches is, um, is what one uh, New Testament scholar has referred to as life after, life after death. That there is life after death. Right? When we die, we still exist. But what we're promised is life after, life after death. Right? There's something that's going to happen. That soul is going to be reconnected with our resurrected body. And that life is a life after, life after death. One of the major passages that really kind of focuses on this and the idea of the resurrected body, of course, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't have the time to go through and, and read all of 1 Corinthians 15, so I just want to highlight some things uh, about this chapter. At the very beginning, the, the first uh, couple verses, Paul emphasizes that the resurrection is a central part of what the gospel is. The good news is what's preached to us. The good news is God's powers for salvation. The good news is what brings us out of darkness into light. But what is that good news? What is that gospel? The gospel in its very simplest form is that Christ died, according to the scriptures, was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. The central thing, the thing that saves us is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And then, of course, in those later passages, uh, uh, you know, those later verses, uh, 3 through 8, Paul emphasizes, right, 
He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the James. He appeared to the uh, other apostles. He appeared to 500 brethren at once. And then finally, he appeared to me. And so he starts off by suggesting, right, the central message of the gospel is resurrection. Why is this so important? Because there were some at Corinth shaped by those Greek thoughts in their culture that didn't believe in resurrection. And so Paul is emphasizing, dealing with those those things by saying one of the central things is Christ rose. If Christ did not raise, if Christ was not resurrected, he moves on to, and then goes through and says, right, you're, you're still in your sins. I mean, how, how key is that then? Right? If, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ is not raised, Christ's death by itself did not do anything for your sins. It is only because Christ rose from the dead that your sins are cleansed. Why? Because Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, which the Corinthians wouldn't have had, but he says that he's declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves that Christ is the Son of God. But if Christ wasn't raised... You're still in your sins. Our preaching is false. And so, you know, they were either deluded or liars. And ultimately he says, you know, we should be pitied above everybody else if we believe this and Christ didn't really rise from the dead. Because we, essentially, we've kind of deluded ourselves. But Christ did rise from the dead. Christ was resurrected is where Paul goes to next, beginning verse 20. And so we can be certain of Christ's resurrection and if we're certain of Christ's resurrection which is such a key concept for you know, those Corinthians who'd become followers of Jesus because if Christ rose from the dead, we can be certain of our resurrection from the dead. And we talked about those passages in verse 20 and verse 23 that emphasize Christ as the first fruits. And that what we wait for is our resurrection. But, somebody might ask, what's the resurrected body like? How were we raised from the dead? Such kind of questions, Paul says, are foolish. And he's a little bit harsher than that. Don't don't worry about it. It's it's going to be connected to the body we have now, but it's going to be different. The body that rises is like the body that died, but it's going to be different. And so Paul makes the, the comparison between a seed and the plant that grows from the seed. The plant that grows from a seed is connected to it. It's all in the seed, but it's not a seed anymore. It's a plant. And so we'll have a transformation. Our bodies are going to be different, but they will be some type of physical, in a sense, body. Transformed, resurrected, but it'll still be connected. 
And so we'll be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. This body will continue, hopefully with more hair and less pounds. But it'll be transformed. So it'll be connected, but it'll be transformed. Lord willing, next week uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what does this mean? What are the consequences of resurrection of the body over immortality of the soul? And then we'll move into talking about uh, hell and some things related to hell. So Lord willing, we'll pick that up next week.